Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we talk about two iconic titles with impressive circulations and a testimony to the power of print. I speak with Dan Wakeford, editor-in-chief of People magazine, one of the best-selling magazines in the United States. Also, we speak with Private Eye's Adam McQueen on his new book celebrating 60 years of the publication. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, a magazine that I've been reading on and off since I was a kid. People Magazine. It still remains one of the most successful titles there are, with a whopping 3 million plus subscribers in the United States. What's the secret of its success? For that and what makes a cover successful, I had the pleasure to speak to People's Editor-in-Chief, Dan Wakeford. I've been a People for seven years and I was the deputy editor to begin with. And I was overseeing half of the content for the brand. Half the brand is celebrity and entertainment, and the other half of the brand is human interest and news. And I'd done a lot of work in the celebrity world for all of my career. And so I loved for spending four or five years overseeing all of the crime, the human interest, and the politics content, and the royals content as well. And so uh, from then, I have become the editor-in-chief in the last um, nearly Two and a half years I've been editor-in-chief and it's been an amazing, thrilling ride. And it's quite interesting that you are, you know, you're British and you're the editor of such an American magazine. I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, it's perhaps one of the most recognized magazines uh, over there. How did you find out about knowing a bit more about American sensibilities, what the American market is interested? Because I'm sure there are quite a lot of differences between US and the UK and what they want to read or not. I came over here 19 years ago and I previously worked at Heat magazine in Europe, which was um, really the center of the zeitgeist at that, that time. And coming to America, it was a bit of a shock how different the readers were. I think the entertainment, I think the subject matter isn't that much different. I grew up with American culture, like American culture is global culture these days in many ways. But I think it's the sensibilities of the readers that you have to adapt to very quickly. America was based on a much more of a Puritan idea. And so there is a lot more conservative views and, and, and there's a moderation from, I think, from what the reader actually wants. Whereas in Europe, it's a lot more shocking and shock and scandal and how you shape a story and, and an editorial proposition around what the readers want and then sometimes there's a lot more uh, government bodies who who interfere in the journalism whereas in america we have the freedom of the press but what you choose to print and the direction of your magazine is very much focused on readers and that's what i love about magazines that is really delivering a unique proposition to readers and what's fascinating, I was reading about the circulation numbers of people. It's, it's incredibly high. And it's interesting because at some point people were saying, oh, people are not interested in buying kind of a print title, talking about celebrities or human interest. I mean, that's clearly a lie, just looking at the success of people. I mean, and of course, you're present online. You have, you know, all sorts of other media channels. But I think, tell me about the importance of print. And, and if you can tell us a bit about the numbers as well, because I, I, some people might be surprised to know that it's still incredibly high. 
I mean, to be honest with you, we don't consider like ourselves one thing. With people, we consider ourselves a platform. We have 118 million consumers a month. Like the brand is so powerful that we've, and we have so many different channels. We don't see ourselves as a magazine, a podcast, a website, a TV show, any of these things. We see people as its own distribution system in a way. We have a huge scale in every channel. And so we don't have the issues and the challenges that many magazines have. We'll launch a new product and it will be the center of another brand's universe. But for us, it's just another element. But print is still so incredibly relevant and really still is the anchor of our brand because it's the prestige of getting a cover of people that celebrities want to be on the cover of the people. 35 million people see each issue of the magazine. We have such a trust with the readers and the subject matter that it's such a powerful combination. We spend so much time and rigor to the journalism with entertainment and journalism. Sometimes you think it's just fun and easy, but the amount of effort and the brilliant journalists that we have on our teams working on this, that it really does bring about that trust. So it means that if I knock on the door of the biggest movie star in the world or somebody, a regular folk who's got an inspiring story to tell, it's very, very often that they will tell their story and and sit down with me because of the trust that we have gained over the 47 years that we've been in business. And there's a certain level of prestige as well to be on the cover of People magazine that maybe celebrities wouldn't have on their own kind of social media space. I think there still has, it still has a certain cachet, right? Oh, it it definitely does. You're the most talked about person in America if you're on the cover of People magazine. And with, I mean, social media is definitely one of our biggest competitors. The idea that um, a star can put themselves in the center of their social media and speak to their fans, but they're speaking to the converted, they're speaking to the choir, they're speaking to the people who know them already. With people, you're introducing yourself to 118 million consumers who might not know you. And also there's an authority because we are journalistic and there is a rigor there and there is an outside body and an authority saying that this person has value and is, is interesting and their story is relevant and captivating. And Dan, one thing that I'm always curious about, the cover, you know, I always had the impression, I mean, in the, in the past, I remember there was a time that when Jennifer Aniston was on the cover, magazines used to sell very well, including, of course, people. Is it still the case? Is there a kind of a name that if you, if you put that on the cover, you know it's going to sell well, you know it's going to do well, or are things a little bit different these days? Well, as soon as I answer that question, the person won't stop, the person will stop selling. So I probably shouldn't answer it. But since you're so nice, Fernando, I will. Um, It's not as straightforward as that. Jennifer Aniston still sells very well. There are many different factors that make somebody sell well. And I have to weigh many of them up. We have with 3 million subscribers and some of them like completely different things to what the newsstand people like. And so there, is me- there are many different factors as what makes somebody interesting. My philosophy is sometimes that the story is bigger than the star. If it's something that is relatable to you as a reader and, or it's something that you have a primal fear about, that that really helps the connection to what will sell as a story. There's got to be an element of surprise, but then really at the heart of it, you really do have to like the person. You have to, you want to buy into this person's world if you're buying a magazine cover at the newsstand. And so the people who do very well, there's one one sector of people in in recent years who have done very well. And I think they are aspirational people in the lifestyle space. 
people who you may not even know, um, the Napiers from HGTV or uh, Chip and Joanna from the Magnolia Network. These are couples who are invo involved in the renovation world, but also have very relatable families, very relatable struggles. And these are people who you really want to buy into their world and their aesthetic and, and learn something from. Then also in the idea of possibly and more in the idea of projection, the royals still do very well. The royals are much more popular in America, even so than they are in the UK. I think that's because Americans have brought, been brought up on Disney and there's a fairy tale fantasy there. So the idea of projection and looking at what somebody in that fairy tale life and what is going on with them, and then also add into that um, the drama around the royals in recent years that it makes them very compelling and captivating cover subjects. I mean, you, you even have a special edition on the Royals, right? Uh, I mean, they're so popular. In, uh, during lockdown, we launched a new special issue, which is absolutely beautiful. It is on the best paper you can get out there, and it's a quarterly product, and we have access to many Royals, and we do a really deep dive, and it's a niche publication on people who really love the Royals, and it really has amazing magazine craft, there's gamification, there's interaction, and then also there's beautiful, deep photography, really amazing storytelling, and um, we get really close to the subject matter. And I love the tongue-in-cheekness of certain editions like The Sexiest Man Alive. I mean, it, it, it became such a cultural topic. I think, I think even the actors, they love when they're nominated there. I think, I think that's definitely one of my favorite issues of the year. I mean, I think that is a brand in itself, The Sexiest yeah. Man Alive. It is such a um, privilege to be the person who's ultimately choosing Sexiest Man Alive, but it is also the bane of my life. I get celebrities messaging me on Instagram asking to be the sexiest man alive. We get publicists pitching it all of the time, and there are many, many different factors that go into it. And I think in recent years, what I've really tried to focus on is like what is in the zeitgeist? What do people respond to for character traits at the moment? And, and trying to find people who are a force for good. During the last two years of my editorship, I've really want to focus the brand on being a force for good. So Sexiest Man Alive does um, bring about a lot of fun and escapism, but I really think during a crisis, it shows the soul of your brand. And I really wanted to make sure that the brand is focusing on doing good in the world. And we do that by choosing people who, who also do good and amplifying their stories, but also we've had very successful um, campaigns for mental health. We have a Let's Talk About It campaign where we get celebrities to talk about their mental health. And uh, most recently, a, a big campaign for um, why I'm getting vaccinated and leveraging powerful figures of encouraging vaccination. Oh, doing good is also sexy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, one interesting thing, Dan, you know, the US is such a big, vast country. And you mentioned that you have a lot of subscribers. Is that where the majority kind of, of People magazine is sent to? Because I still think here in Europe, you know, people go to the newsstand, but I think the US is a completely different story. I'm sure you can find it in a supermarket or in a bookshop or a bookstore, but I think subscriptions is massively important oh. there, right? Yes, um, it's 3 million subscribers and we're the second most expensive subscription in the world, second to The Economist. And so it's, it's an expensive subscription, but it's a quality subscription that's worth it. And then um, I think the newsstand is probably about 10% of that figure. So there are many different things to weigh up. I've actually 
been looking at different models lately in the last summer to a lot of success of having actually two covers at the newsstand quite often. So you'll have two six page stories in the magazine and I will do different stories, one for subscribers, one for newsstand or a combination for newsstand, because the idea that you have different audience segments on the newsstand, whether that's crime lovers, whether that's royal lovers, celebrity fans or, or new different news stories. So we've worked on many different ways of experimenting and it's great working for a company that really encourages that experimentation. Well, because my final question would be like, what are your plans, you know, for, for people in general for this year and next? And I think that's, that's one of them, perhaps. <laughs> but that is, I mean, we work, we're launching so many new, exciting products in the digital arena, in the TV arena. We've, I've leveraged the brand with many different new TV shows. Um, this month, we have a new TV show on Discovery and, and uh, Discovery Plus and Magnolia, the children of 9-11. We've, we've got many documentaries coming back out. We've got some amazing new digital products and new podcasts. But I mean, I think generally broadly, I'm really always trying to strengthen that focus on stories that you can't get anywhere else. It's a great privilege helming a brand like people where I can get access to people and they trust me. So it's always trying to think about finding a story that isn't going to be told anywhere else and that I, I can tell and I'm trusted to tell. And that, that's what I'm here for. I love telling stories. I got into journalism to tell stories and this job is one of the best in the world to do that. You're very right. I mean, People is the kind of magazine that you, don't, you guys don't speculate on things. You, you go directly to the source, right? So whoever has something to tell, you know, they will go there on the cover of, of People. Yeah, we spend so much time and a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of journalism making sure that we are right. Right, we'd like to be first with our news on our online. Our, our digital team are absolutely amazing, but we're always more cognizant of being correct than being first. There was Dan Wakeford, editor in chief of People Magazine. Moving on to another iconic title, Private Eye. The satirical British publication is very much a success in the newsstand. Its circulation keeps on rising. To celebrate Private Eye's 60 years, Adam McQueen, who worked at the title since the beginning of the Blair years, decided to launch a book, Private Eye, the 60-year book. The book is in fact Private Eye's take on everything that happened between 1961 and 2021. Monaco 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, also a big fan of the title, spoke to Adam about the book. Adam, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to chat to you, particularly about the the 60-year book, Private Eye. Pretty amazing 60 years. Uh, Six decades of jokes and journalism as the book is subtitled. I was going to start off with your sort of personal story, though, because you began there, I think, what, in the sort of late 90s, is that right, as a kind of tyro? 1997, yeah. I think it was late September 1997, which was a really odd time for Private Eye because there's this thing. Private Eye does really, really well when you have horrendously unpopular governments. So they were very, very lucky when they launched in 1961 that you're kind of getting to the the fag end of that kind of post-war consensus and Harold Macmillan. And then he ends up after the Profumo scandal handing over to the 14th Earl of Hume. I mean, you you don't get kind of more establishment than that. And there was this real appetite for kind of satire about them and taking the mickey out of them, which the Private Eye kind of surfed that way. And then this thing happened in 1964 where Harold Wilson came in, Labour government, by pretty much a landslide. And everyone kind of went, well, hang on, we don't want you to take the mickey out of them as well. 
and almost the same thing was happening in 1997. This is really, really hard to believe now because everyone across the world seems to have decided that Tony Blair is the devil incarnate and the worst thing that ever happened to politics. But at that point, he was incredibly popular. I mean, he won by a massive landslide in May that year. And you can actually see, if you look at the eyes circulation on the graph, the readership just drops off at that point. It was at one of its lowest points because there's this strange sort of honeymoon period where, where, where no one wants to hear anything bad about this groovy, exciting new government who've come in and replaced John Major's incredibly corrupt uh, conservatives at that point. And there was this really odd period up until I think it was December that year when the first kind of big new Labour scandal came out, which, if you remember, was about Bernie Eccleston, the boss of Formula One, making a, a million pound donation to Labour at about the same time that they dropped uh, they dropped a, ban, a planned ban on tobacco advertising on Formula One. And that was kind of the big scandal. And that's when everyone kind of woke up and said, oh, OK, yeah, no, actually, maybe there is a role for private eye in all this. But I was before that. I sort of so September I joined, which was a very odd time for the, for the eye because it was it was during that honeymoon period for Blair and also just after the death of Princess Diana, which the eyes coverage, it's quite hard, again, it's quite hard to look back at this and see, see, see it not in the context now, was deemed so offensive at the time that it was being pulled off shelves and banned from sale in newsagents as well. So it was, it was quite an interesting time to come in. Certainly, and I, I can't imagine that you would have thought, what, getting on for, I don't want to be mean, but getting on for a quarter of a century later, you'd still be there now putting together a treasury of some of, of the eyes' best bits. Did you have a feeling that you belonged immediately right in those in those early days remember my very very first day I literally had arrived on work experience and I was in for a week and it was Ian Hislop's then uh, secretary and PA who's uh, called Hilary Lowinger she's retired now but she literally my, my journalistic training in total consisted of her showing me to an empty office and saying that's a computer, that's an in-tray, and that's your phone, okay? And leaving me to it. And I think <laughs> it was kind of journalism through panic. I was just so terrified. I sat down and started calling people and researching stories and, and ended up writing about 10 stories, I think, three of which got in the magazine, none of which particularly stand up to scrutiny now. It's quite embarrassing to look back on them. But, yeah, I, I loved it. It was a fantastic place to be. One of the nicest things. I mean, at the moment, we've all been working from home, obviously, for the last 18 months because of the pandemic. But my seat in the office, uh, which I've held on to ever since those days, is right next to uh, what we call the joke writing room which is Ian Hislop, the editor's office. And um, in there, you get various combinations of people like Ian and Nick Newman, and it was Richard Ingrams and Christopher Booker and Barry Fantoni, the, the guys who'd been there right from the beginning. And now people like um, Giles Pilbrow and Colin Swash all coming in there and having these communal joke writing sessions. And it's such a pleasure when you're next door kind of bashing out an investigative piece on, on some politician uh, who's been doing something naughty, just to hear the gales of laughter that come out of that, because the, the joke writing is done basically as a, a competition to see who can make each other laugh the most and try and try and top each other's laugh each time. So that, that, that makes for a really nice atmosphere to be working in. Well, I was going to ask you a bit about this sort of strange alchemy of the eye because our listeners, and we have listeners all around the world, many of them are familiar with the eye in, in any case, but for, for the uninitiated, just give us a bit more context there because people may think that they're familiar with the satire, the spoofs, you know, many of which have been running for, you know, well, five decades or so now. But there is that real heft. You talk about writing the sort of the exposés, there's corruption exposed misdeeds revealed in public office and private, miscarriages of justice righted. Often that takes a very, very long time. But it is a strange mix, isn't it, of the, as you say, gales of laughter and then the profoundly serious almost at once. It is a really, really weird mix. And I always think, I mean, it's kind of grown organically over those 60 years. If you tried to pitch this now to a publishing company, if you said, 
so it's going to be a magazine. It's going to do some serious investigative stuff. It's going to expose a lot of government corruption and tax avoidance and that sort of thing. Um, there's also going to be some pages in the back that are devoted to campaigning for miscarriages of justice, sometimes for decades at a time, that make really, really difficult reading. You know, people who've been wrongly convicted of murder or people dying in horrible conditions in prisons or in care homes that aren't, aren't properly looked after and things like that. And then in the middle, there's going to be several pages of jokes some of which are going to be so tasteless that you'll regularly get readers uh, cancelling their subscriptions and then cartoons liberally uh, scattered over the whole thing and any publisher would just go what that's like four or five different magazines and that's even before you get onto the specialist columnists like um, Phil Hammond MD who has been doing some absolutely superlative coverage of the uh, coronavirus crisis and the mishandling of that in in the Department of Health we've got agribusiness a very very insightful um column on farming we've got another one by an expert on trains writing about the state of the railways who's been there ever since the uh, the railways were madly privatized in the uk in the 1990s an architecture correspondent as well who um who uh doesn't tend to write about beautiful new buildings he writes about terrible new buildings and, and old buildings not being looked after so it's this sort of mad mix of absolutely everything but it, it, it does somehow work and i think one of the reasons it works is that the the different bits of it kind of level out each other because I think if you've just got a solid diet of the sort of corruption and bribery and ineptitude of government and the, the revolving door between um, big business and, and, and the civil service and stuff and the miscarriages of justice, it would be a really, really depressing read. So you really, really need those jokes in the middle to kind of um, when your blood pressure rises too high with anger at it or you need something to kind of calm you down and, uh, and make you laugh at the state of the world as well. So, so that works really, really well. I, I always remember... Paul Foote, who was kind of the doyen of investigative journalists and a really, really important part of Private Eye for the first, first four decades at least, he always used to say that uh, he knew and he was absolutely fine with the fact that his stuff at the back, the miscarriages of justice and things, was the stuff that got read about two weeks after the rest of it on the toilet because people turned to the jokes first and read them. But, you know, he knew that that was a way to get an audience for this slightly more difficult stuff that people really, really needed to know about was to kind of smuggle it in there with some jokes and, uh, and, and it would get the audience that it needed. Well, you've mentioned you've reeled off so many of these stellar names already, mentioning Paul Foote there, but you've got, yeah, Peter Cook, Richard Ingrams, Craig Brown, Ian Hislop, of course, still the editor, real masters of their craft and cartoonists as well. Heath Rushton, Scarf, Nick Newman, who's been on this, who's been on this programme. How did you then pick and choose um, when you're sort of tasked with curating from such a trove? Where do you start? I guess you just have to kind of go with your favourites, but how do you do it? So I was lucky. I said to Ian when I pitched this book, uh, I said, it's not going to be the best of private eye because that would just be mind blowingly difficult to do. I said it's going to be the history of the last 60 years as seen through the pages of private eye. My, my working title for it was dot, 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 as seen by private eye. Uh, and I pitched it, you know, with the Falklands War as seen by private eye. It'll be the moon landings as seen by private eye. It'll be Mrs. Thatcher as seen by private eye. And that was literally how we did it. I went through year by year and I, I had a list of all the kind of the big stories that I needed to hit in that year. And of course, the nature of that is that you do end up with something that is effectively the best of private eye. Because if you're going to do Mrs. Thatcher, you're going to do the Dear Bill letters, which ran in private eye. Uh, the, the letters supposedly from, from Dennis Thatcher, her husband, to his golfing partner, Bill, uh, throughout her reign. Uh, you're going to have Mrs. Wilson's diary, which was the first of those kind of big spoofs when Harold Wilson was in Downing Street. You're going to have lots of the famous bubble covers, which are probably the thing that, that, that Private Eye is best known for. And inevitably, you're going to end up having some of those amazing cartoonists that, that you named, like Gerald Scarf and Ralph Steadman and, 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 and Nick Newman and Ken Pine. You know, they're, they're all going to end up in there as well. So it, it kind of becomes this thing. But it is 
it is it starts off as being a, a kind of alternative history of those of those last uh, 60 years as well and the amazing thing was Ian was very keen that it should reflect both sides of the magazine so for every year we have not only how we covered the big stories elsewhere but the big stories that the eye was breaking those years as well. And it's amazing how many of those have stood the test of time. Right back to 1964, when you mentioned him, our, our proprietor then, Peter Cook, guest edited an edition when um, Richard Ingrams, the then editor, was on holiday and just decided to name the Cray Twins, who were these gangsters who were terrorising London at the time. And they'd been kind of talked about in hushed tones in various newspapers and things, never brought to justice at that point. And Peter Cook said, I'm just going to name them. I'm going to put their names in, uh, in private eye. And he did so. And then he went on holiday next week uh, and let Richard come back and take any repercussions that might have been coming his, coming his way. Instead of publish and be damned, he just said, publish and be absent, which I think is quite a good policy. Very wise words indeed, actually. Yeah. And then what about bringing things right up to speed? The last, what, couple of years, you've already mentioned the work that your brilliant MD uh, columnist, uh, Phil Hammond, has, has been doing. But... What's it meant for Private Eye as a as a sort of as an entity? You've talked about some of the presumably the challenge, I guess, a little bit of replicating that the, the nuance, the fun of the office working remotely. But what's that done? Because it's interesting to reflect on your readership. It continues to go up and up and up, and it's to the print magazine as well. It's it has a limited presence online as the podcast as well, but it, it remains the print product is absolutely the you know has primacy in the sort of private eye environment. What's that process been been like? It must be extraordinary to reflect on the enduring appeal of the title, even in these straightened last eighteen months or so. There's a cartoon from sort of the late 90s, about 97 or 98, which went in the eye. And it's of um, a newspaper office, and they're all sat around an editorial conference. And um, the person who represents the, uh, the, the internet side of the newspaper, the website, is saying, congratulations, guys, we've just become our own biggest competitor. And actually, I think that, on a serious point, is what Ian sussed out really early. Was he, he just thought, if you start putting up everything on the internet for free, which, is, which was the policy in newspapers in the 1990s, why on earth would people carry on buying the magazine? And so we had just carried on in our own gloriously old-fashioned way, giving away hardly anything online. As you said, we've, we've done the podcast. We've done a couple of other weird high-tech things. So Richard Brooks, who is uh, one of our financial and uh, correspondents, uh, put together this amazing interactive map of all of the properties in Britain uh, which are owned offshore through through uh, various dodgy and dubious companies. So, you, can, you know, you can put your postcode in there and you can zoom in and you can see exactly who owns that bit of land up the street, which actually, it turns out, isn't up your street it's in the British Virgin Islands or somewhere so where technology has kind of helped us tell the sort of stories that we want to tell we haven't we haven't shied away from using that but yeah as you say it is still this um cheaply produced looking thing on not very good quality paper the ink comes off on your hands it's this very very old-fashioned thing and I think readers do appreciate that they like particularly I think in these last 18 months most of us who've been condemned to working from home have spent most of our days staring at a screen and having conversations with people on a screen. And actually something that is, is ink on paper, I think, is a bit of a relief at the end of that day, particularly if it's got some great cartoons in it. But technologically, the eye went forward. I mean, we were the only place probably for the last 30 years before 2020 that was still being put together with moving bits of paper around on a large table in our production studio. That was the way we did it. It used to be the case that the pieces of paper were actually stuck down with cow gum on pieces of cardboard. This is when I started in the late 90s. They were loaded up onto the back of a moped and taken off round to an offset LIFO printer somewhere in the East End, which is not the way that anyone else had been doing it for years and years. And I think the only, way, only reason the eye ever stopped doing that was because the cow gum that they were using was banned by the EU because it was carcinogenic. Uh, so it wasn't particularly for you know, technological progress reasons. But then suddenly in March 2020, we had to switch over to doing 
everything remotely, everything online. And the eye suddenly progressed about two, if not three decades technologically within the space of that fortnight. And all of us, certainly the, uh, the hacks, as we call ourselves, the journalists, were, were sitting at home kind of waiting to see if anything would actually emerge at the other end. And the magazine came out looking exactly the same as it's always done, which is down to the brilliant the technical and production side of it, which is headed up by, uh, by people like Glenn Orton and, and Tristan Davis. They did an absolutely incredible job. There was one story in that first edition that went in twice, but it was a really good story about, uh, about Ian Duncan Smith. So, um, so we were OK with that, really. <laughs> yeah, so, so good. You ran it twice. And, and is there in what you've just said there, Adam, a clue as to the enduring power and potential of private eye as we look, I don't know, at the decades ahead, maybe six more or many or more even than that of them, not just for the enduring appeal of great satire and, you know, clever writers and writers also who are hell-bent on exposing the kinds of miscarriages of justice and misdeeds and public office that we've talked about, but also of this unashamedly kind of traditional approach to journalism, news gathering and news making. And I, and I don't use the term traditional pejoratively, as many do, because it is, a, it is, it's unashamedly old fashioned. And there's something rather nice about that, isn't there? An editor who's unafraid to wield a red pen in, in the current market where we're, there's often a glut of information and digital channels where everybody has a, a voice, something that is rigorously edited and put together in, a, in an un, unashamedly old fashioned way, surely is, is going to be crucial in the years ahead. I think there is. I think we've ended up filling in, uh, as well as all the stuff that Private Eye has kind of um, innovated and uh, and started itself. I think we've ended up filling in a lot of the gaps that are, there isn't space for elsewhere in the media. So I always think a lot of the stuff we're doing is kind of proper analysis of the news of the last fortnight and, and really looking into Oh, it's such a horrible journalistic cliche, but the story behind the stories. It's the sort of thing that the Sundays used to do, kind of big in-depth stuff. But I'm always amazed when something huge, like, say, recently, the report that was done by the BBC into how, how Martin Bashir got that Princess Diana interview for Panorama a uh, quarter of a century ago. Huge sound and fury and rolling news and who's going to resign and who's going to... Very little people, very few people elsewhere in the media seem to have actually read through and, and analysed exactly what was in that report, who was responsible for what back in the 1990s and, uh, and actually done the kind of solid reporting on it that, that used to be done as well, because everything is always about breaking headlines and moving on to the next thing. So, so there's this kind of gap that's opened up for the eye to do a bit of that as well. But the thing that really gives me hope for hopefully the next six decades, I, I hope I'm not there for the 120th anniversary, that would be quite weird, but it's it's that younger generation coming through. So I literally, I had a story sent in by a freelancer this week, and it was an incredibly good story. It was a really, really good spot. And he's, he's sort of early 20s. An awful lot of um, people who are coming through journalism school at that point are thinking, I just want to write opinion columns. I want to be, you know, I want to be a blogger. I want to be the next Owen Jones or someone like that. This is actual full solid reporting. He put in some freedom of information requests. He'd found some stuff out that people needed to know. He'd made the connection that it was about someone that, that the eye has written about an awful lot over the years, pitched it to us. And he wrote it perfectly in that eye style. And then again today, I've just been talking to uh, Zoom Rockman who's one of our cartoonists. Now, the oldest of our cartoonists is probably someone like Ed McLaughlin or Michael Heath, who are in their 80s now, still drawing just as beautifully and intricately and brilliant as ever. Zoom Rockman is 21, I discovered today. I mean, he's, he, he's a child, practically, and he's come through doing absolutely brilliant, silly cartoons and really quite hard-hitting cartoons. He did one uh, a couple of years ago after the Grenfell fire of um, the House of Commons uh, with, with cladding on it saying, you know, scenes you would never see, cheap cladding put up of the House of Commons because they're, they're looking after themselves instead. That's what really gives me hope. There is a whole new generation coming through uh, who you would think 
would never have bothered to pick up this this slightly grotty paper magazine because they'd be too busy looking at stuff on 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 TikTok and their phones instead. But they they get it as well. You know, we keep recruiting the people who become the angry old men who cancel their subscriptions of the future. Well, more power to you and more more repeats of that process. So that's what we want, Adam. Uh, Private Eye, the 60-year book, Six Decades of Jokes and Journalism. It's out this very week. Am I right in saying that? It is, yes. Yeah, officially published 2nd of September, but in all good bookshops now. There was Adam McQueen there. His book, Private Eye, the 60-year book, is out now. And of course, the amazing title is available in all the good newsstands in the UK. For more on Private Eye, stay tuned for next week's stack, where we will speak with Phil Hammond, who covered COVID like no one else for the title. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Daryl Hall and John Oates with Private Eyes. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye-bye.